18, verses 16 through 20 through 34. Excuse me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he, see, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he is, was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Well, thank you, Jess. 
It's good to see all of you here. Uh, before we begin, I just want to say thank you to Logan and to your team, Logan, our worship pastor, and the whole team that leads us in worship week after week, uh, those that you see here on the platform as well as those in the, in the tech booth. Um, they bring us something that, that allows us to express to God things we might not otherwise express, like that, that line, oh, for grace to trust him more. I didn't wake up this morning thinking, I need more grace from God so that I can trust God more. But I express that to God, and it stirs something in my heart. And so I uh, just want to say thank you for bringing that to us. Well, who, in your opinion, is the person you know that is the most unlikely to become a follower of Jesus Christ? I mean, who is the person that you say, out of everybody that I know, this is the guy, this is the, this is the woman who just is never really going to get to the place where they turn from self and from sin, they turn to God, they bow the knee to Jesus, they confess him as Lord and say, Jesus, I will follow you throughout the rest of my life, no matter what the cost. They're just insurmountable barriers for this person. Got a person in mind? Uh, sometimes those barriers are intellectual. Sometimes they are, are uh, moral. There's a morality. They, they would say, no, I just will not follow that aspect of morality that Jesus taught. Or it could be uh, a matter, an emotional issue. And the person that you find the most unlikely, it might be a family member. Actually, very likely it's a family member, the people we know the best. We have these experiences with, we've seen them, we have heard them talk, they've taken stances, and we know they're never going to change. Could be a friend, uh, could be a co-worker. It's very possible that the most unlikely person you know is you. Well, today's passage argues that the good news about Jesus and the resurrection is for all people everywhere including the unlikely people in your life and in my life. The gospel is for the people that you and I think are the most unlikely to be disciples of Jesus. And this reality should both challenge us to have greater faith, and it should encourage us not to lose heart and give up spiritually and just say, I'm done. You're never going to bow the knee, and so I'm done with you. It really changes our perspective. So we're going to look at, at the passage Jess read, uh, one of the most famous sermons that uh, has ever been given, Paul preaching to the, the, the uh, philosophers at the Areopagus. A few words about the context of today's passage. Last week we saw that after Paul's life was threatened in Thessalonica, he was taken to Berea. After his life was threatened in Berea, he was taken away, he was put on a ship, and he came to Athens. And so Paul didn't plan on going to Athens. Uh, Paul is a fugitive. He's running from, from people. But he found himself in Athens, and so what did he do? Well, he ended up talking to people about Jesus and the resurrection. And he talked with all sorts of people, including these high-powered philosophers. And they were surely among the least likely of all people he encountered to become disciples of Jesus. They had so many barriers. They just looked at the world just so differently than, than Paul did coming from a biblical grid. But Paul spoke the gospel to them because, as he would tell them, 
this message is for all people everywhere. And some of them, whereas in other places, many of them, but here only some of them believed. That doesn't mean it was a failure. If one person believes, it is a success. God has won the battle for that person's heart. And so Paul's experience shows us three things related to sharing Christ with the unlikely people in our lives. First of all, our motivation is the glory of God. The glory of God is what motivated Paul in Athens. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. One translation says the city was smothered in idols. Uh, One person said that it's easier to find a god in Athens than a person. It was estimated that there were about 10,000 people in Athens and there were about 30,000 idols in Athens. When Paul walked around and he saw this, his spirit was provoked within him. And him being provoked really mirrored the heart of God because God was provoked. The same word is used in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe how God was provoked to anger when he saw the children of Israel bowing down to the golden, the golden calf in the wilderness. And so because God was zealous for his own glory, Paul was also. He was provoked in spirit when God was being robbed of the glory that these people should have been giving to God, but they gave to idols. And of course, he wanted people to escape the wrath of God. Of course, he wanted people to experience life in Christ. But perhaps even more than that, he wanted God to receive the worship that he was due. And that's what motivated him to preach Christ in Athens. And you might be thinking, okay, we're in Manhattan, Kansas. What does this have to do with us? We don't see idols on every corner. Does that mean that we have, we have, idolatry is less of a problem here than there? Absolutely not, right? An idol is a God substitute. It's been said that the human heart is an idol factory. An idol is anything that we raise up in the place of God. Even good things, things that in and of themselves are not in any way evil, can become idols. Whereas, and I'm thinking about things like money, sex, power, reputation, family, our intellects, our bodies, any of these things can be raised up to a place that God should, should occupy alone. And whereas we're supposed to love God wholeheartedly so often and so easily, we love God half-heartedly and we set our deepest affections on these other things. And so today's passage uh, flags for us First, one issue, it flags the issue of whether or not we will be captivated by the glory of God and he will be supreme in our lives or whether we will bow down to lesser gods. We will bow down to idols. There's right at the end of 1 Timothy, it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the second issue that's flagged by this passage is whether or not we will be motivated by the glory of God to share the message about Jesus so others might give God the glory that he deserves. Well, that's what motivated Paul to talk about Christ in Athens. Look at verses 17 and following. So, because he was provoked uh, by these idols, uh, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, Jews first, 
and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the, the, some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So they were there in the, the Agora, in the marketplace. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, it's really hard to summarize what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed, but one way to say it is that the, the uh, Epicureans were basically deists. They believed that God was remote and that he was uninvolved in human life, and so he left humans to do whatever they wanted to do. And uh, the Epicureans didn't believe in an afterlife. They thought that when you died, you were done. And so they didn't believe in any judgment that they would face, no accountability to God. The Stoics, they were pantheists. They believed that God was in everyone and everything. And so he was, he was close, um, but they believed that the world was not ruled by a personal God, but it was just ruled by fate. And so, therefore, you simply try to live a good life. If you experience pain, you endure it, and you keep moving forward. And so the Stoics, they believe that the, in the immortality of the soul, they believe the soul would last eternally, which is very different from immortality as is talked about in the New Testament. But they didn't believe in anything like a bodily resurrection or living uh, through eternally, eternity embodied. And so when they heard Paul preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, they said, who is this babbler? And that word literally means seed picker. It's like a bird. He's like a bird. He goes around picking up this random thought, and there's no coherence. There's nothing, there's nothing substantive to it. And so they were very dismissive of Paul, but they were kind of interested because they thought Jesus was a god and the resurrection, Anastasia was a god. And so maybe here's some foreign deities. Maybe we should learn about them. And so maybe we should actually worship them. So verse 19, so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. And then here's Luke's comment. This wasn't a compliment. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so the Areopagus, it was named after the hill of Ares. That's the uh, Greek god. The uh, Roman god was Mars, Mars Hill. But the Areopagus is named after that. It was a council, kind of like a city council, and they had a lot of influence. Uh, over air, air, uh, issues of religion and civic issues. And so they invited Paul, or perhaps forced Paul, to speak to them because some of the members wanted to hear about Jesus and the resurrection. And Paul's sermon to, to the Areopagus shows us that our message to the unlikely is that the one true living God can actually be known. The one true living God can be known. So motivated by the glory of God, Paul told, told the, or, the Areopagus that uh, God that they didn't know can be known. And beginning in verse 22, we have a summary of his, his speech. 
Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And that word religious is kind of ambiguous. It's kind of like spiritual in our day. You can have the positive connotation of you're very devout, as evidenced by 30,000 idols. It can also have a negative connotation of you are very superstitious, as evidenced by 30,000 idols. And uh, and uh, he explains, verse 23, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he says, he was walking along, I found this altar, and there was an inscription. It said, to an unknown God. Uh, that word unknown, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the Greek word and see if it reminds you of something. It's agnostos, okay? It's the word unknown. And today, if you are agnostic, uh, you can mean a number of things. You might mean that I don't, I don't know whether or not God does exist, or if you are agnostic, you might be saying, I don't think it's possible to know whether or not God exists. Well, in Athens, the people that had this altar to an unknown God, they were agnostic in a different, different sense. They believed that there were many gods that they did know, gods like Zeus, Poseidon, Hermes, Ares, Athena, and they made idols to these gods, and they worshiped them. They brought sacrifices to these gods. But they also believed that there were other gods, other gods that existed that they did not know. And in case they had offended those gods, they made an altar to them and they brought sacrifices to these unknown gods just in case that they needed to make things right with them. And so in a very bold moose, and so their, their agnosticism was that they admitted we're ignorant about these gods, but they believed they existed. In a very bold move, Paul tells them, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he's not at all implying that they had unknowingly been worshiping the God of Israel. He's just acknowledging, you've said that you're ignorant about these gods. Well, that's a God. Here, I'm going to tell you about the God that you need to know about. And he is the God of Israel. And who he is, what he does, has been revealed in the scripture. And so, what Paul says next about the God of the Bible, it can be summarized in a, a lot of different ways. And I have to tell you, I wrestled with this. this how do you preach Paul's sermon in a sermon? But uh, I'm going to use John Stott's outline. It's found in his commentary on the book of Acts. And uh, his outline summarizes five things that Paul says about God. I think this is primarily about God. Paul says, I'm going to proclaim to you this God that you need to know. And he says, five things about God in contrast with the gods or the idols of Athens. Hope you find it as helpful as I do. First of all, God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. So from Genesis to Revelation, it said over and over and over, God is the creator of everything. Therefore, he is the owner of of everything. And that includes humanity. And one implication is that he is therefore the Lord or the ruler of heaven and earth. 
And as the creator, the ruler, the owner of everyone and everything, it is absurd to think that you are going to limit him, you're going to corral him, and he can be contained in a, a, it's literally a handmade house, a house that you might make, a temple. And Israel actually needed to be reminded of this as well. They had this sense, we've got the temple, therefore we've got God. And it's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. He meets you there. That that's not where he lives. That's not where he's localized. You can't think about him in that sense. Second, God is the sustainer of life. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And so Paul's going to say God doesn't, he's not dependent on us in any sense. He doesn't, in a sense, need anything from us as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It turns out that we are absolutely dependent on him. We are dependent on him for every single thing. The next breath we take, that's a gift of God. Today is a gift from God. It's a gift you'll never have back. The food you eat today, it's a gift from God. The money that you have, even the money that you earned, it is a gift from God. He gave you the skills to work, to earn. Everything we have is a gift from God. And by the way, if we actually believe this, if this is more than just an a idea that we entertain, but we actually believe that, we will live our lives in radically different ways. We will be grateful people. We will be joyful people. We will be generous people. It's this basic idea of stewardship. We've been given this, everything we have, every good gift, by God for a finite amount of time, what are we going to do with it? Well, we enjoy it, we give it, we use it for his glory. Third, God is the ruler of all the nations. In these verses, God, Paul establishes God's sovereignty over all, all of human history. He began with one man, and he is moving all of history to its appointed end. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods or allotted times and boundaries of their dwelling place. And some understand Paul to be uh, describing how God made boundaries between the land and the sea and uh, uh, established the seasons, but I think it's best to understand him as talking about God being sovereign over the history and the geographical boundaries of nations changes from time to time. But wherever you're living, you need to know that God is the ruler of that nation, its boundaries, and its time, its, its season. And we see this in the Old Testament when God accomplishes his purposes, even through evil nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, without in any way being culpable for their evil, he accomplished his purposes through them. And look at the reason he rules and sustains the nations, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he's describing the nations, and they're, they're living in, he's going to call it the time of ignorance uh, before the death and resurrection of Christ. He said, nations... The, the peoples of these nations trying to find God, it's as if you're blindfolded and you're kind of stumbling and groping down the hall and around furniture trying to get somewhere. Perhaps you will find him. And he says, the problem is not that God is remote. 
No, he is not far off. He is near to us. Then he quotes from uh, a 6th century B.C. uh, poet. He says, in him we we, we live and move and have our being. Fourth, moreover, God is the father of human beings. And here he quotes another Greek poet. Verse 28, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So by quoting this, this Greek poet, he's certainly not saying that he got it right because that poet would have believed we are the offspring of Zeus. And so he's obviously not saying that. But this poet's impulse to, deceive, to see a divine being as their father was spot on. Now, in the Bible, there's a sense in which when it comes to your salvation, we become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, John 1, 12. But there's another sense in which every human being who has ever lived is the offspring of God because we are created in his image. And in verse 29, Paul tells him, the fact that we are God's offspring, that we are created in his image, it makes idolatry illogical and absurd. And so we should never employ art and imagination to create gods out of gold or silver or stone. And that leads to Paul's fifth and final statement about God. God is the judge of the world. In verse 30, Paul describes centuries and millennia before the death and resurrection of of Jesus as the, the times of ignorance. It's not the same word, but he's describing this age of agnosticism, this age where people just did not know. They didn't know who the true, one true living God was. It's the time when the nations lack this knowledge. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked in the sense that he was patient with them. He didn't judge them prematurely and bring human history to an end. But now, after the death and resurrection of Christ, he commands commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their idolatry, turn back to God in faith. And notice why Paul said that now is the time for all people everywhere to repent. He says, because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, drumroll, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It was Jesus in the resurrection that got their attention, and and he wraps it up by talking about Jesus and the resurrection. He says three things about this judgment. He says, God is the judge. He says, first of all, the day of the judgment is fixed. It will happen when God wants it to. Uh, Nothing can speed or delay that day. Number two, God will judge the world in righteousness, in fairness. God is righteous. You have this refrain in the book of Revelation when these judgments of God come. And this refrain is it's said different ways, but it's the people cry out, God's judgments are true and just. When it's all said and done, nobody will be able to bring an accusation against God. His judgments are just. And then third, 
And this is this was the the thing that that uh, man it got fired up. He says God will judge the world through a man He has appointed. And by the way, you know how you can be sure who that man is? Well, he's the one that God raised from the dead. And so the resurrection of Jesus declares he is the man. He is the man who will judge all humanity, the living and the dead. And so the God that Paul described here is light years away from the gods that were worshipped in Athens. Nevertheless, he, he declared, God commands that all people everywhere turn from their sin, turn back to, him, to God in faith through Jesus Christ because he has died on the cross to pay for sin and he has been raised never to die again. And so God commands people in every culture, on every continent, in every generation to turn from the gods they've been worshiping and turn back to him, the one true living God. And the third thing about unlikely, the unlikely in our lives, is that our hope is that some of them, some of the unlikely will respond in faith and become disciples. We saw last week that in Thessalonica and Berea, people respond to the gospel in radically different ways. The same thing is true here in Athens. Notice the response, verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Have you ever been mocked because you've told someone you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and he was raised bodily on the third day? Have you ever had anybody just laugh at you? And just think, that's the most ludicrous thing I've ever said. Why, you know, why would you believe that? Well, they laughed at Paul also. There are worse things that can, there are a lot worse things that can happen to you. Some people laughed at Paul, they mocked him. But others said, we will hear you again about this. They were open, they wanted to hear more. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men, some of the people, joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. And so here was a man, he was a member of the Areopagus. He was one of these philosophers, and he believed. One of the most unlikely people imaginable. He believed. He followed Paul. He became a true disciple of Jesus. The vast majority of his colleagues, his friends, they scoffed, they scoffed at him. But the seed of the gospel found in his heart good soil, and it sprang up to eternal life. As well, he says, a woman named Damaris, and the uh, same thing was true of her uh, by virtue of the fact that she was present. She may have been a member of the Areopagus. She might have been something like a visiting scholar. But again, she responded the way Dionysius did, as well as others with them. And so the spiritual fruit in Athens, it confirms that this news about Jesus and the resurrection, it is for all people everywhere. Not everyone will believe, but some will. Some of the most unlikely people will believe. And that brings us back to these people that we thought about in the very first of this message, these, these unlikely in our lives. Now, honestly, when I, when I think about this, this... Uh, yeah, this hits me in a deep place. I have, there are people I love, I have family members. I have dear, dear friends that I love. And when I think in my human reasoning, I mean, I think, honestly, I think 
Putin would come to Christ before these people. I mean, I just can't imagine. These people would just never come to Christ. Too many barriers. It's just not going to happen. Why do I even bother? And when I try to figure out, okay, how can I, how can I lead them to Christ? That's when I really despair. But I read this passage, and I see Paul's zeal for the glory of God. And I think, what if I had that zeal? What if that motivated me? And I hear how Paul talked about God, the one true living God. He's the creator. He is the sustainer. He's the ruler. He's the father. He's the judge. If I know God like that, and I talk about God like that, and I live this transparent life, and I share with him about that God, why wouldn't they believe? I mean, honestly, why wouldn't that be compelling in their lives? And I see Dionysius. I see Damaris. I see these others. They come to faith. And I think, why, why can't the people, the unlikely in my life, come to faith? And so this, this raises up in me this desire to trust God, this desire to pray fervent prayers for the people that I love. Because I don't want them to experience the wrath of God. I want them to experience life eternal. And I want God to get the glory that he deserves from their lives. And I wonder if this passage is striking you the same way as well. And if you're the unlikely person, the most unlikely person you know, I hope that you know for certain that this message about Jesus and the resurrection, it is for you. It really is. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be people who are passionate about your glory, not just for us, but for everybody we know, that everyone would give you the glory you deserve. We pray, God, that this vision of who you are would, would uh, inflame our imaginations. It might move us forward, that we would be people that love to tell others about you. And God, may we have faith, may we have this, this hope, this confidence that the gospel will bear fruit even in the lives of the most unlikely. We believe this is your heart. God, you saved Paul. He was among the unlo- most unlikely. Some, some of us who follow you in this room would say that we at one time were the most unlikely people. And so, God, we know you're able. We pray that we will walk in faith. Trust you for great things. Would you move in power? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. So age to age he stands. And age to age he stands. Faithful to
Gracious God, we acknowledge today that when we are poor and needy, you provide for us. When we are weak and wounded, you heal us. When we are downcast and discouraged, you lift our weary heads. 
When we are powerless, helpless and powerless, you give us strength. When we were held captive to our sin, you saved us through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. In your kindness and mercy, you treat us better than we deserve. May we, in response to your compassion, show compassion to our neighbors. May your name be glorified and exalted as a result of our giving, that others may know of your saving act in Jesus Christ. All of this is for your glory and honor. Amen. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.